0: The baby's
1: crazy Hi, I'm James day. Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Sorceress, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized urban fantasy fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 29 Lights blinded Aaron when she reappeared on the tarmac outside the desert magic hangar. Wind roared around her and there was the coughing sound of an engine sputtering to a stop and rubber tires screeching along concrete. The plane they'd appeared in front of stopped well short of hitting them, but it was still close enough that Aaron let out a short scream of surprise. When she realized whose plane it was and that it wasn't going to inadvertently kill her, She started pressing on the wounds in Stone's chest. She didn't know whether or not it was the right thing to do, but she'd seen it in movies and on television hundreds of times. It wasn't long before the hatch on the plane popped open and Carter Black emerged. His face contorted in confusion and anger. Where the hell did you come from, he said. I just dropped you. He saw Stone on the ground and his face immediately relaxed into controlled focus. He rushed forward to help Aaron what the hell happened he got shot I brought him back here for help you brought later Aaron said we need an ambulance Carter Carter nodded and pulled his phone from his pocket he spoke quickly into the phone and a few seconds later doors opened in the hangar and three men came running in their direction my guys are all ex-military he said one of them was a medic he can help until the ambulance gets here the three men came running up and gently pushed Aaron to the side One of them carried a large orange and white toolbox that opened to reveal a professional-looking first aid kit. Carter helped Aaron to her feet, and they walked a short distance away. Okay, Carter said. I dropped you guys off less than three hours ago, and as soon as I get back here, I find this. I know Sentry gets into some weird stuff, but what the hell is happening here? Have you talked to Warburton? Aaron asked. Yeah, I contacted her as soon as I was in clear airspace. What did she tell you? I think it amounted to thanks for calling. Yeah, typical. Would you mind calling her back? I don't know the number. Carter hesitated, shook his head, and then pulled out his phone. He tapped a button on the screen and the sound of a phone ringing came over the speaker. As soon as Warburton answered, Aaron started talking. She filled her in on everything that had happened since Carter had dropped them off in the desert. Aaron saw his eyes widen when she mentioned teleporting them through Letitia. What is Israel's condition? Warburton said in even tones. He's a little beat up and looks hungry, but he's still with us, Aaron said. And the breach? Aaron shook her head. We didn't actually see it, but Stone was freaked the hell out about it. Whatever it is, it's happening now and it's happening fast. I've been in touch with the DGRI. They wanted more intelligence before taking any kind of decisive action. I think you just provided it. Aaron, you need to get back and get Israel and yourself out of there. If the military takes over with the time left to us, they will have no choice but to fire rockets into that area to close the breach. Will that work? Aaron asked. No, Carter said. Olivia, they can't do that. They are the government, Mr. Black. I promise you they can. No, Carter said. I don't mean they can't get away with it. I mean they literally can't do that. Didn't you hear Aaron when she said that nothing electrical was working? The way she's talking, light isn't even behaving correctly. I was more than a hard mile away from the town when my instruments started screwing up. And every asset the military has at the ready is electrically based, Warburton said. Good God, it could take hours for them to come up with some kind of mechanical response, assuming they even can. Olivia? Olivia? It sounds like the inner dark is bleeding into our reality and altering or overriding it. When has this ever happened before? How do we close that? There was silence for a long moment. Then Olivia said, stand by. Oh, for fuck's sake, Aaron said in disgust. Red and blue lights washed over them in rotating waves as an ambulance pulled up next to Stone and the trio of Carter's men. How do they normally close one of these things? Aaron said to Carter. A normal-sized one. Carter shook his head. I only ever dealt with the one that awakened me. The thing is, breach points begin with a focus. Something that is empowered with the kind of energy you need for the job. It can be large or small, just something that can provide even the smallest conduit to the inner dark. Even a suitably powerful awakened would work. Okay, okay, get to the closing the hole part. Well, that's just it. You start with the tiny conduit and add more power to it by whatever means, and it gets bigger. The theory is that eventually the breach will get big enough to draw its own power from the inner dark and become self-sustaining. At that point, it can't be closed. So if you want to close it, you have to do it before it gets too big. Exactly. And you do that by breaking whatever it was that started it in the first place. The focus, yeah. Back in century, we used explosives or incendiaries depending on what we needed to destroy. If the Texas breach hasn't reached the point of no return, then there's a focus point that can shut it down, but I've got to be honest, Aaron. As big as that thing is, I think we need to plan for the worst. Aaron cursed and turned away from the ambulance lights flashing in her face. She looked out over the runways and the city lights in the near distance. Nearby, she could see a plane being loaded and refueled by men and women in bright orange safety vests. She took in the scene and said to Carter, Hey, when you were with Sentry, did they teach you how to blow shit up? Carter walked over and joined her. He followed her line of sight. When he realized what she was looking at, he said, You can do that? She shrugged, I'm damn sure gonna find out. Carter considered it and then nodded. Yeah,
0: I think I can rig something.
1: Chapter 30 Israel ached with hunger. He tried to ignore it as he made his way through the sickly light of the abandoned meatpacking plant, but it kept snatching his attention. Fortunately, there weren't many sources of nourishment nearby, even though he could catch the occasional scent, however faint, that made him shiver with need. When he found the door Jordan had pointed out, he entered it and descended a dark stairwell that opened up into a large basement walled in brick and supported by thick brick columns. The light was stronger here, but seemed more a luminous mist than any kind of real light Israel had ever seen. He watched it swirl and flow around him as he moved his hands. Then he realized it was in motion, flowing very slowly up the stairs and into the world beyond like bright smoke in a vent. Israel realized he was letting his curiosity distract him and turned his attention to his surroundings. The basement had obviously been the site of some kind of construction. There were many lights and generators now dark and cold scattered through the space, and tools of all sorts leaning against the walls and resting in toolboxes of various designs. The wall just opposite the door had been demolished, and Israel could see a natural cavern winding away beyond the opening. The mist light was flowing from that direction. He was moving toward it when the squid heads attacked. The first one dropped from the tunnel ceiling and rebounded off the floor like some kind of huge jumping insect. It hit Israel at chest height and wrapped its arms around him in a bear hug. Israel managed to keep his feet under the weight and flinched away from the snapping teeth and grasping tentacles coming at his throat. He heaved his arms away from his body and managed to break the thing's grip. He shoved it hard and it slid backwards across the floor and into a collection of freestanding work lights that clattered to the floor with the monster. A second squidhead charged at him from behind, knocking him off balance and sent him staggering forward. Israel's foot caught on a bucket filled with demolition tools and he pitched forward into hard dirt. He knew the squid head would be right behind him so he rolled fast to his back as soon as he hit and brought his legs up to kick out at the thing. The timing was perfect. The monster had jumped for the prone Israel and landed on the bottoms of his feet, clawing and snapping at his face and throat. Israel kicked out hard with both legs, and the creature sailed backwards and into one of the heavy brick columns. Its head cracked hard against the stone, and it slumped to the ground, twitching. Israel got one knee under him and knelt there as he watched the first squid head finish untangling itself from the lights it had collided with. It kicked away one of the lights and stalked toward Israel like a hissing violet-eyed cat. A third monster came forward from the deeper parts of the basement and joined its hissing with the firsts. They stood tensed and ready to spring. Israel stayed very still, thinking through the scenario while he had the chance. His eyes fell on the bucket he'd tripped over. Its contents were scattered across the ground and there, just within his reach, was a heavy steel crowbar. Israel looked up at the monsters that were stalking him. They looked like they had been blue-collar workingmen in life, likely two of the people who'd demolished this basement. That's not who they were anymore, though. They were something else now, something horrible. And Israel realized he had to start thinking of them in those terms. Mind set, teeth clenched, Israel grabbed the crowbar and sprinted forward. The squid head that had gotten tangled in the lights was closest and met his charge with arms wide to grapple him. Israel sidestepped the monster's grip and swung the crowbar in a backhanded arc that landed solidly on the back of the creature's skull. With Israel's enhanced strength, the bone and tissue collapsed under the blow until the crowbar was touching the back of the thing's ear. Tentacles and limbs both went limp as the thing died and Israel wrenched his weapon free with a spray of blood and gore. The third, and Israel really hoped last, Squidhead ran toward him with the same wild teeth snapping abandon as the others had. He met the thing's charge and cleaved in its head before it even had a chance to grab him. He stood there for a moment, looking around at the dead monsters and the gore-slick crowbar in his hand. He expected the hunger to rage at him, urge him to feed, but... Instead, he was repulsed. The scent of these things was wrong, unnatural, and diseased. He remembered Olivia calling them corrupted and thought that was probably a more accurate name than the one he'd been using. Still, though, the full body ache was there, clawing at his reason and threatening to overwhelm it. Israel stood in silence and refocused himself on what he was there to do, what was at stake, and what could happen if he failed hunger did not matter he did not matter he made those words his new mantra and entered the tunnel he was still reciting it when he found the end of the tunnel and the chamber that it opened into he clenched his teeth against the overpowering scent of blood that permeated the air and made his jaw quiver with the urge to feed Israel walked with controlled and deliberate movements to the ledge that overlooked the chamber. The terraced sides of the bowl-shaped chamber were covered in blood. It ran freely from the bodies that circled the room and spiraled down to the center where another body floated above a stone table with the sickly light pouring from a gaping wound in its chest and abdomen. The light coalesced into a kind of black glowing disk that filled the top of the chamber. From that disk, hundreds of writhing and sliding tentacles swayed in lazy arcs through the room, as though tasting the dank air. Israel heard the sound of steel thudding into stone and looked toward the sound. There, across the chamber on the third tier up from the bottom, was a pale-skinned man dressed in pure black. Israel hadn't noticed him before or he would have tried to stop him from shoving the dagger into the man he was standing over. With one swift motion, the man in black dragged the dagger through his victim's torso and raised his hands in a wide arc to the ceiling. Is it not glorious, Mr. Trent? Is it not all that was promised, power and darkness and the blood of the weak? Israel watched as a thick line of black mist rolled from the body and trailed up into the center corpse. It was just as Jordan Screed had described at least he'd been honest about that. Do I know you? Israel said through clenched teeth. The blood smelled so damn good. No, but I know you. I know so many people. All of those here, all of those before these. You and the Sims woman, though. You were the only two who got away. My great masters did not choose to show me that. I'm curious as to why and what plans they have for you. Despite his mental struggle, Israel half-smiled. I don't really do the whole master thing. What you do is irrelevant. They are the glory. They are the power. Their will is all. Right. That's why you had to commit mass murder in order to open the door for them. I guess their will and power doesn't extend to doorknobs. Do not blaspheme, boy, the man shouted. We must show our faith. We must show our dedication. The blood of the innocent and the powerful are the balm which will ease their rebirth into this world. It is the color of their glory and the sea in which they will swim. Rebirth, Israel said. Then what are you? the world's most screwed-up midwife? I am their seer. I am their high priest and the architect of their glory and renewal. I will sit at the left hand of their throne and enact their will upon the weak, unawakened maggots who crawl this earth. Israel looked up at the writhing mass stretching through the disk of light and said, You're going to need a big-ass throne for that. The seer shook his head in disbelief. How can you stand there and look upon the glory of the old ones and still mock them? Look at it, Israel. Look at the immensity and power that they are. Israel actually took a moment and looked into the mass of sliding and curling black that was caressing the ceiling and swaying in the air. He looked deeper toward the center of the mass and, Just for an instant, as two appendages slid away from one another, thought he saw the deep black of outer space. He shifted his gaze back to the seer, to his rapturous expression and his blood-caked face. A smile crossed the high priest's lips as one small tentacle came down and lightly caressed the man's brow. Tears of joy formed in the man's eyes and rolled pale streaks through the blood on his cheeks. Israel took a few steps back from the edge. All I see is a monster, he said, and I'm not talking about the giant squid. Israel sprinted forward and jumped from the ledge as hard as he could. He flew through the air in a perfect trajectory for the seer with the crowbar held behind him, readied for a blow that would shatter the man's skull like it was an eggshell. Israel was a little over halfway across the chamber when the seer flicked his wrist and one of the tentacles slapped Israel aside as though he were little more than an annoying insect. Israel landed in a heap on top of one of the stone tables. Both he and the corpse that was already there sprawled onto the floor in a tangle of dead limbs and slick, congealing blood. Israel wrestled the body from on top of him. He was covered in blood now, skin, hair, clothing. The smell of it was maddening. Israel tried to crawl away from it, but there was no escape. That was very dramatic, Israel. Tactically idiotic, but dramatic. Like so many of your generation, you've learned about battle from movies and video games. It will make you such easy prey. Israel huddled back against the stone table, keeping it between him and the seer. The blood was everywhere, sweet and metallic and calling to him like the finest wine. He wanted it, wanted to scoop it in his hands, drink from it, savor it. He wanted... Israel kept his teeth clenched against the urges. He would not do it, he told himself, not from another human, never that, no matter what, never from another human. His eyes popped open and he stripped off his bloody shirt, trying to get as much of the blood away from him as he could. He rubbed at his hands, rubbed. It was like watching a puddle evaporate in a fast-forward film. The thin sheet of blood soaked into his skin like water into a damp sponge. Eyes wide, Israel took two fingers and scooped a small amount of blood onto a relatively clean spot on his forearm. It took a few seconds, but it was definitely soaking into him. This was involuntary, like a normal man putting on lotion for his skin to absorb it wasn't feeding but it might take the edge off did you really think my dark masters would not reward me for my efforts here israel their flesh protects me their minds work through me you are nothing compared to that israel stood up from behind the stone table like a rising revenant blood was smeared over every inch of his half-naked body Israel glistened with it and faced the seer from across the bloody pit. You and your cult stole my life. I'm going to make you pay for that. Please, Israel, I gave you a life, a real life in the real world. You should be thanking me. Oh, get over yourself, Israel said and ran forward. The seer flicked his hands back and forth and thick appendages slapped at Israel, knocking him back and or to one side. He dodged where he could, tried to knock aside the black limbs, but there were just too many. He went tumbling to one side or another while the seer stood laughing. Israel did not stop, though. He got back up and kept coming until finally the seer shouted, Enough! and gripped his fists tightly before his face. The tentacle that had just knocked Israel to the ground suddenly snaked around his upper body, while another secured his calves. He could still bend his arms at the elbow, and he struggled against the grip, but even his new strength was nothing compared to what held him. The seer gestured, and the appendages lifted Israel and carried him to within an arm's reach of the seer. Israel met his eyes and did not blink. I suppose I owe you some small thanks, Israel. There is a necessary delay between sacrifices and The waiting was dreadfully dull until you showed up. Now, though, I think you will have to be next. You are a powerful and rare paragon, Israel, and your blood will make a delicious elixir for my masters. Israel continued to struggle, but the hideous grip on him just seemed to tighten and push his arms further to his back. I don't think cutting me open will do you much good he said, struggling to draw in air for his words. I suppose not. I think decapitation will achieve the same results, though. Besides, it's nice to break up one's routine on occasion. That, Israel said, is really good advice. His right hand slid low and around from his back, upper arm pressed tight against his chest. In his hand was Stone's pistol, Israel pointed in the seer's general direction and fired all eleven shots at the man. It was by no means expert marksmanship, but six bloody holes appeared in the seer's chest, neck, and abdomen as the man staggered backwards. He held his feet for a moment and then fell to his knees, blood fountaining from the wound in his throat. He seemed to try and speak as he reached for the mass of oily flesh that protruded from the ceiling, but slumped forward instead one useless hand trying to stem the dying flow of blood from his neck. As he died, whatever connection he had with the things from the inner dark suddenly sent them into a frenzy. The otherworldly protrusions extended violently at the moment of the seer's death and started slapping and clawing at everything in the room. Israel was thrown from his bonds and hit the wall above the highest tier hard enough that he felt the bone in his upper arm crack. He scrambled to his feet. He thought the portal would close with the seer's passing. Instead, he stood and watched in horror as this small part of the seer's dark god started stabbing into the remaining sacrifices and pushing at the edge of the glowing disk. A dozen people died in the blink of an eye. There was a sharp crack from above him, and Israel looked up to see dozens and dozens of the black tendrils snaking along the ceiling and forcing their way through the stone and dirt. Another crack echoed through the air, and flat rock that was as long as Israel was tall hit a tier five feet from him and shattered. That snapped him out of his mental shock, and he ran along the upper tier until he was even with the ledge he'd first come in on. He tensed his legs and jumped high enough that he managed to catch the edge and claw his way over. He rose and spared an instant to look back. More rocks were falling, and he could swear the disc was larger than it had been. Israel turned and sprinted for the tunnel. The ground shuddered under his feet. He came to the stairwell and raced up the trembling steel stairs three at a time. Bursting from the stairwell door, Israel dodged around the debris as old bricks and rusty metal started falling from the structure. Suddenly, the floor in front of him bowed outward and then ruptured as a black tentacle as thick as a man's waist shot up through the floor and slapped against the far wall, knocking it outward and bringing a section of the ceiling crumbling down on top of the flailing appendage. Israel was knocked backwards, but got back on his feet almost immediately. Other sections of the floor started to rupture, and he sprinted forward as fast as he could, dodging debris and jumping over black shapes emerging from underground. He reached the largest of the tentacles and ran up its length a few feet before leaping off of it and into the Texas night. He hit the ground, rolled, and came up running with the crack of collapsing stone and the screech of tearing metal echoing through the night behind him. After a few seconds, he skidded to a stop and looked back. The hunger was on him again like a fever in his bones, but the sight before him made it seem almost negligible. The Black Star meatpacking facility was falling apart. Whole walls collapsed onto the vehicles that had been parked outside as black writhing shapes, some of them the size of large trees, burst from the ground and sent stone, brick, and metal debris sailing into the night. Israel watched as they twisted and reached skyward as though they were clawing their way to heaven. He noticed the first of the figures as they came streaming over and around the hill that he, Aaron, and Stone had taken refuge on earlier. It was the squid heads from Letitia. They flooded over the hill, hundreds of them, and rushed into the mass of alien flesh, heedless of debris or danger. They leapt at the huge appendages with their arms, legs, and head tendrils spread wide. When they struck one, they stuck to it, and the tendrils latched on, pulling the human faces and bodies into the black flesh. Israel watched as, very slowly, the bodies were absorbed. Despite not needing it, Israel drew in a deep, shuddering breath. His mind raced as he watched more and more of the squidheads throw themselves into oblivion. He looked at the hill to see if they were still coming, and exhaled the useless breath when he saw what was sitting on top of it.
0: Chapter 31
1: He got to the top of the hill at a sprint. The hunger was gnawing at him, but panic helped him push it aside. It was hard to decide what he found more unbelievable, the horror happening in the valley below him, or the aviation fuel truck that had inexplicably appeared atop this hill in the Texas desert. Except that it wasn't inexplicable if you knew the people he did. Aaron, he yelled, where are you? There was no reply. He approached the truck from the passenger side and let his hand slide across its smooth metal surface. Some small part of him wanted to laugh despite the horror of the situation. What Aaron could do simply amazed him. He called her name again as he rounded the rear of the vehicle to the driver's side. Aaron was lying in the dirt by the driver's door. Israel rushed to her and dropped to his knees. She had fallen face down, so he rolled her over to get a better look at her. Again, his body ached at the sight and scent of her warm flesh, but he pushed it aside with unyielding determination. She was alive, but her breath was heavy and seemed to come in wheezing gasps. Blood flowed in slow lines from her nose and mixed with the dirt there to muddy her face. There was blood on her lips, and when her eyes fluttered open, he could see the starburst pattern of ruptured capillaries in her eyes. Is he? she whispered blood showing in the grooves between her teeth. Izzy, it was too heavy. I pushed too hard. Fuck, it hurts. Israel lifted her head out of the dirt. Hey, no sweat. You got it here. You're still dropping F-bombs, so you're fine. Just stay awake, okay? She nodded and stammered. Help me up. I want to sit up. He lifted her as gently as he could. There was a massive shuddering eruption from the bottom of the hill and a cloud of dust bloomed in the sky. Aaron's head snapped around with pain deficiency. What's that? The breach, Israel said. I didn't close it. I thought I could, but it didn't work. The truck, Aaron said. Carter rigged. She winced as a wave of pain rolled through her. He rigged the truck. I can do it if it's not too late. How? How? We can't even crank the thing. She told him to help her up. He did so, ignoring his instincts all the while. She leaned on the truck and pointed at an exposed set of pipes and valves that were installed under the large tank on the back of the truck. Israel assumed it was the spot that workers attached the hoses they needed to fuel up an aircraft. There's a handle there. It's got a red cord tied to it. Israel spotted it and said, Okay. Carter did this, his bloodline thing. He says that if we open that valve, we'll have about a minute before whatever he did lights a fire in this thing and blows it sky high. Israel looked the handle over carefully. He saw scratches on the metal that reminded him of what he'd seen on Carter's plane earlier. Is he sure this is going to work here? Nothing else seems to. Aaron didn't reply. She was leaning hard against the truck, holding one arm over her abdomen. Israel got up and said, Hey, hey, hang in there. Look, you think you can get back to Vegas? I think you need a hospital. I'm not going back alone, she whispered. Israel could sense her pain, smell the blood on her breath. A part of him thought how easy it would be to take her as weak as she was. He turned away and closed his eyes, concentrating on the task at hand and pushing the gnawing hunger to the side. If we just push it down the hill we might veer off to one side he said without looking back we need to steer it down drive it right down that thing's throat or whatever i'm sorry aaron said i thought i could just send it there but it's too big you have absolutely nothing to be sorry about you just chill here i'll handle the big bang no way aaron said her voice hard with determination Carter said this stuff would go up in a big way. You can't know you'll get clear of it. I can do that much. We'll write it down, and just before it hits, I'll get us away. I think I've got that much left in the tank. Aaron, are you sure? You look like hell. Despite her pain, Aaron let out a small laugh. Says the dead guy. Check the mirror, Izzy. You're not exactly ready for a close-up. Israel turned and faced her. She met his eyes and said, we had a deal. We see this shit through until we're out of it. We watch each other's back. I'm not leaving you here. Israel stared at her while another smaller impact echoed through the valley. Finally, he nodded and without a word picked Aaron up like they were newlyweds crossing a threshold and carried her around to the passenger side. When she saw the crater that had once been the meatpacking plant and the mass of fleshy black trying to claw its way free, she inhaled sharply and whispered, "Oh my God. Israel didn't reply. He put her in the passenger seat and closed the door behind her. He returned to the driver's side and climbed into the cab. He made sure the brakes were disengaged and the truck was in neutral. This done, he got out and did a quick assessment of the ground running up to his target. There were a few things he would have to look out for, but it was a relatively straight shot. He would have to get the truck rolling, though, and hope the momentum would be enough to get them there. Plan in mind, he walked back to the handle Aaron had shown him and pushed it into position. Orange-gold light radiated out in a band of angled patterns around the pipe. It startled Israel, and he pulled his hand away, thinking for a moment that the truck would explode prematurely. It didn't, though, and he quickly found a grip on the frame and started pushing. The truck didn't move. He pushed harder, his feet digging into the desert soil from the pressure. Every muscle in his body strained against the weight, and he heard an inhuman growl roll from his throat. Then, inch by inch, Israel Trent moved nearly 15 tons of truck and jet fuel until it started coasting down the hill toward his enemy. He leapt into the driver's side of the cab before the truck was moving too fast. He clamped his hands onto the steering wheel and focused on the ground outside the windshield. He was on fire with hunger. In the confined space with Aaron, the heady, metallic musk of her bloodied skin was maddening. The things that he wanted to do, the horrible, monstrous things that he was instinctively contemplating flowed through his mind like a torrent of blind, unthinking bloodlust. He ground his teeth until he thought they would crack and bought it all back, narrowing his focus to guiding the truck to its target. It bounced along, gaining speed as it coasted down the steep hill. Smaller obstacles were either knocked away or crushed beneath heavy tires. They reached the base of the hill and the truck bounced hard at the sudden change in angle, but seemed to keep its momentum. Neither Aaron nor Israel had bothered to put on seatbelts and were jarred in their seats by the impact. Aaron cried out in pain, and the sound raised a low, unwilling growl in Israel's throat. He stopped it and continued to focus on the desert that was rushing at them. They were almost halfway across the distance to the breach when the truck started to slow. Israel could feel it and squeeze the steering wheel so tight he felt the plastic coating crack in his hands. Oh shit! Aaron said, we aren't going to make it all the way. Suddenly the windshield was filled with black and something knocked the truck sideways. Windows shattered and Israel and Aaron were tossed around the cabin as the truck was lifted into the air, then down again, and then suddenly high over the breach by two of the massive tentacles. Israel was still clinging to the steering wheel as the truck tilted forward in the monster's grasp. Israel looked at Aaron, stunned and bloody, lying against the dashboard with her hands extended to hold herself steady. There was a part of him that recognized her, knew who she was. There was a greater part, though, that just didn't care. The thing from the inner dark dropped the truck and it fell toward the breach. Israel let loose a ravenous growl and reached for Aaron. She looked up at him with her blood-speckled eyes and in a weary voice said, I wish you could have been my brother. Then she touched his extended hand. Israel was suddenly falling through the cool desert night. He hit the ground hard and got to his feet, looking for Aaron, for the sweet-scented flesh that had been so close only a moment before. Something registered in the struggling part of his mind, and he looked to the west. In the distance, waving black shadows slapped against the desert like angry cobras emerging from a nest. A small white shape was just vanishing into the bottom of the black mass when a fireball burst from it with a thunderous roar and lit up the night with a blossom of fire that reached a hundred or more feet in the air. The shockwave that rushed out from it knocked Israel off his feet, even though he was easily half a mile away. Israel watched the fire collapse back in on itself as the black monstrosities quivered and fell limp to the desert floor, burning bright. The strange light that had permeated the former Black Star facility was breaking apart and fading into something more normal. Within minutes, the only movement on the horizon was the rolling smoke and dancing flames. Israel scanned the desert around him. He was alone. Somewhere beneath the blinding hunger, a part of him screamed in anger and sorrow at that fact. The rest, though, the part that was in control now, sniffed the desert air and ran into the living night. Chapter 32 It was nearly noon the day after the Letitia incident, as it came to be called, before the DGRI helicopter spotted Israel Trent wandering the desert By then, he'd left enough of a trail of dead snakes and rabbits behind him that he was back in control of himself, so he hadn't fought them when they had landed and taken him into custody. Despite a lot of tough talking and threats from the DGRI agents, he hadn't stayed in their custody for long. The facts about the events leading up to the breach came to light, and Olivia's government contacts ordered the choppers to drop Israel off at an airport in Midland, Texas, where he was met by a sentry group jet that was well-stocked with pre-cooked cuts of beef and so comfortable that it neared the point of pretension. He scarcely noticed it, though, and spent most of the flight back to Silversky thinking about Erin and what might have happened to her. For two days he stayed in his room at Silversky and only interacted with people long enough to take his meals and refuse visitors. He spent the time going over the events of the last week of his life and watching news channels spin the fabrications that had been built around the explosion in Texas. It was the usual mix of opinionated reporting and slanted journalism that dominated the airwaves with a lot of speculation, out-of-context facts, and finger-pointing designed to influence whatever flavor of viewer the station in question catered to. The one bright spot to it all was the fact that Jordan and Carmine Screed were being blamed for the entire thing and had taken Israel's place as America's newest terrorist threats. Even with that, though, it didn't take him long to grow disgusted by the whole thing. On the morning of the third day after Letitia, he cleaned himself up and went to see Olivia in her office. She wasn't in, but he was told he could wait and she would be along shortly. He thanked the security officer and passed the time looking through the books and photos that were collected in her office. There were pictures of Olivia with celebrities and well-known politicians, as well as writers and poets of every sort. Israel found one photo in a well-polished silver frame placed on a bookshelf that was an easy view from the desk. It was an old photo with washed-out colors and a few scratches. It showed a group of six young people, early twenties, Israel guessed, all laughing and playfully posing beside an old Cadillac convertible. Israel recognized a young Olivia Warburton sitting on the hood of the car with her legs kicked out as she leaned back to back with another young woman. In the lower right-hand corner of the picture, someone had written, The Dark Walkers. Israel heard the near-silent whir of Olivia's wheelchair enter the room, and without turning around, he said, I never figured you for being in a band. She rolled up next to him and saw what he was holding. Oh, yes. Well, we weren't a band. More like a gang of foolish kids. Kind of a junior sentry group. All of our families were involved in life behind the veil, and we thought our lives would be just one big rollicking adventure. So much so that we gave ourselves that name. That was actually taken about a week before we met Stone, the name stuck, though. Stone adopted it for our more elite sentry operatives. Israel put the photo down and sat in a chair where he could face Olivia. How is he? He'll recover. He's tougher than most polar bears and just too damn stubborn to die. Israel nodded. Good. He owes me a story. So I heard. Israel's gaze drifted to the bright, clear day outside Olivia's window. The light blinded him a little, but he looked anyway. How are you, Israel? He shrugged. Things have slowed down now. I've got time to sit and think, figure out this new life of mine. life, whatever it is. I figure my only choices are to stay with Sentry or spend my life dodging the DGRI. Not much of a choice there. Olivia nodded. As I've said, you are welcome here, and we are best equipped to help you with this new lifestyle. You have my support regardless, though. After what you and Aaron did, it's the least I can do. I've been watching the talking heads, he said, looking back at her. What's the real story back in Texas? The twins are there now, actually." They're heading up a joint investigation team that's focused on recovering as much information as we can from the site, as well as identifying what victims we can. The place is a wealth of genetic samples and atmospheric trace samples. The twins are in their element. Is there any sign of Aaron? Israel asked. Olivia dropped her eyes and said, We don't know yet. The explosion was so massive and so hot that what remains we found are having to be identified by DNA records. The truck was reduced to scrap, so that's no help. I think she would have been in touch by now if she were alive, Israel. It's a safe assumption that she just used the last of her strength to save you. I know what she did, Israel said with more of an edge to his voice than he intended. Of course, Olivia said. There are people that tell me not to trust you. They tell me that you only care about your agenda to the exclusion of all else, including the safety of your agents. I don't know how true that is, but I also don't have that hard a time believing it. If I stay here, I need to know that you are going to withhold any information, that you are going to send me into a situation blind. I want to know everything, Olivia. She held his eyes with hers in silence for a long moment. The Letitia breach was the largest ever recorded, Israel. You were there. You saw what wants into this world, this reality. Saw it more clearly than anyone, I'd wager. You saw the zealots who want that to happen and the lengths they are willing to go to. The truth is, they aren't the only threats we have to face on behalf of the world outside the veil. That is what I have spent my life fighting against. Join me in that fight, Israel, and I promise I will share everything I know with you. Israel stood again, went to the window, and looked up at the painfully blue sky. Aaron gets a memorial, he said, like Matt's. That's already being done. And you take care of my dad like you promised before. Absolutely. Israel watched the full white clouds for a time and then looked back at Olivia. I'm in.
0: Epilogue
1: Erin Sims woke to shadows. Her eyes fluttered open in slow, weary blanks. All around her was the bright glow of moonlight. She lay face down, the scent of loam in her nostrils and thick grasses caressing her cheeks and tickling her ears. Air whispered through the tall blades and a lone nightbird warbled somewhere in the distance. The air was dry and autumn crisp. Erin slowly pushed herself up and nearly cried at the pain that lanced through her every muscle and joint. The sickly metallic tang of old blood coated her mouth. A dim memory came to her, and she tried to call out for Israel, but her dry throat and aching jaw denied her the action. She'd tried to get them out, to save them, but it had been so hard through all the pain and chaos of the moment. She looked about, hoping to see him nearby, but was brought to a stunned stop when she saw her surroundings. She was on a hilltop overlooking a small cove. Far below, what looked to be a community of small log cabins was spread out around a large stream that flowed over rocks and swirled in small pools before it continued into the darker night. A larger structure, long and rectangular, stood on a small rise opposite the hill she was on. People, easily a hundred or more, moved between the buildings and campfires. There were adults and children. Some sat tending to pots and roasting meats while Others danced or huddled over tables, laughing or talking. Beyond the encampment was a mountainous shadowed horizon that rose to meet a night sky filled with twinkling stars that glittered with hints of color that Aaron couldn't remember ever noticing before, as though each star was a tiny glittering opal. What hijacked her attention, though, was the moon. It was huge and full and filling the world with silver light, brighter than she had ever seen, which made a kind of sense when you took into account the other moon. It was smaller, maybe a third the size of the larger one, and hung in the sky just slightly to the right and above its bigger sister. The inner dark was the space between realities. That was what Warburton had told her, worlds upon worlds and the doors between them. When all was said and done, she thought, isn't that all the breach had been? Aaron's mind reeled at the implications. She turned in a slow circle. There were silhouettes of trees in the dark that looked too narrow and tall to be natural. The air was clean, cleaner than anything she'd ever smelled before, totally untouched by anything industrial. The grasses at her feet seemed too dark even in the moonlight and... When she touched a blade, it felt as though it were covered in a thin, fine fur. Her gaze returned to the encampment and she noticed that a small group had gathered and seemed to be staring in her direction, straining to see in the dim light. One of them raised a tentative hand and waved at her. Aaron returned their stare and, after
0: a moment, waved back.
1: Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sorceress as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at serialaudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.
0: we